0: So welcome to all of you to our third Kant um, lecture. And it's, uh, it's an honor to have in our midst here Professor Philip Van Parijs. Um, he will be speaking about European democracy and the language question. So another slide with August Conte there on the left, Philip Van Parijs on the right. And uh, let me say a couple of things about, about Philip here. So, he's a, a professor at the Faculty of Economic, Social, and Political Science of the Catholic University of Louvain. And you know, we'll be talking about language, so you get this confusing situation of UCL. He's also a visiting professor at the KUL, which is also the Catholic University of Louvain, but that's the Dutch version. <laughs> and up there is the French version. He's also a director of the Hoover Chair. Um, of the economic, of economic and Social Justice, and a visiting professor in Harvard University as well. Many accomplishments, I'm just going to name a few here. He's done a lot of work on universal basic income, was the founder of the Basic Income European Network, um, which has now extended into a basic income Earth Network. Um, the next entry is kind of interesting uh, for, the, for, for the language issues, um, because Philip and I actually, uh, when I was living in Belgium way back, uh, we were about 20 miles apart, but there was a language border in between us. And I was five miles north of the language border in the Flemish area. Philip was about 10 miles, I would say, south of that language border. And uh, he's been doing a lot of work in trying to make Belgium into a single electoral district for European Parliament elections. And that's the Pavia group. And also with the Rebel initiative, the idea is how to adapt the Belgian institutions to the European Union. And I would say, if people weren't, if people like Philip weren't, be doing this work, you know, maybe we we wouldn't be compatriots anymore. So he sort of <laughs> keeps us together in a way. Um, so I have the honour of uh, introducing a compatriot of mine. Um, and then we have a saying in Flemish, which is. Niemand is sant in eigen land, which means something like nobody is a saint in their own country. Now, Philip is actually a counterexample to this. Um, He is the recipient of the Franqui Prize, which is a prestigious prize in Belgium. Um, And then last but not least, when do you ever see a living philosopher on a stamp? Okay. And so this is a Belgian stamp that came out in 2007 with nine famous Belgian scholars. OK, so this is, this is not Edimerics. Um, This is not um, Hercule Poirot. Um, this is not Alfred Sax, the inventor of the saxophone. This is not Smurfs. No, these are nine famous Belgian scholars. And Philippus is right there. We'll just zoom in on him. And there he is, yeah, I think you can recognize it. Now, it's hard to see the picture, but you might, you know, you might see the surfer there. Right, And so, you know, everybody sort of has a little picture which indicates, you know, what their specialty is. So, you know, do we have a world-class surfer? No, we don't. We don't. We have a world-class political philosopher, political and social philosopher. But uh, where does a surfer come from? Well, there was a very influential article published in 1991 in um, Philosophy and Public Affairs, which was named Why Surfers Should Be Fed, The Liberal Case for an Unconditional Basic Income. And that then turned into a very influential book. I think it's a, the book, as you say in your introduction. Um, it's a real freedom for all. Uh, many other books I could list, but just a couple here. Evolutionary Explanation of the Social Sciences in 1981. Marxism recycled 1993 and now there is this book in progress linguistic justice for Europe and for the world and that's what we're going to hear more about in this third august Kant lecture Um, and that's it for what i have to say the only thing i want to say it now because if i don't say it now i will forget afterwards you are all invited to a reception in the senior common room old building fifth floor following the lecture so philip take it away Thank you.
1: Okay, well, uh, thank you very much, uh, dear compatriot, uh, <laughs> for as long as it lasts. Maybe. Um, and uh, uh, thank you in particular for this opportunity to uh, give an uh, Auguste Comte uh, a lecture. This is uh, straight away the plan of uh, the structure of what I'm going to say. There is one simple question. Uh, then there there will be two parts, one entitled uh, Forget It and one entitled Yes, We Can. Uh, The question is very simple, it says is democracy sustainable in a multilingual polity such as the European Union? Multilingual polity I mean a political entity, a political community in which there is linguistic diversity, that is in which there are large numbers of people speaking different languages as their mother tongues and the question is whether democracy is simply understood as a regime in which uh, people uh, decide for themselves, uh, defined as uh, uh, the, uh, the government of the people by the people, not necessarily for the people. So is democracy so defined? sustainable in a multilingual politics such as the uh, the European Union. As you will soon discover, there are good reasons to doubt this, to doubt that the answer is yes. But given that this is a Comte lecture, I thought it would be a good idea to go and find out whether Comte himself, Auguste Comte himself, had said anything about the topic, had he said anything about Europe and its future, had he said anything about democracy, had he said anything about languages. To be quite honest, I didn't know at all, and as a good old scholar of the 20th century, I took my ladder and went to fetch five books, half a dozen books that were there on my shelves, on, on my bookshelves and which I had completely forgotten I had, including one I discovered I bought in 1971 in Aix-les-Bains, so, uh, so I took these books out but also as a 21st century human being, I googled heavily in order to supplement this very uh, limited information I could get on my bookshelves. And what did I find out? I found out that Kant had thought of Europe Indeed, he had a very clear picture about what Europe had to become. Europe, in fact, was, as he preferred to call it, l'Occident, huh? meaning by that uh, the western part of Europe, and then a few appendices, including uh, in uh, the north of America. So uh, Europe, so defined, had to be broken into a number of pieces. Europe in this type consisted of five nations. Huh? Cinq grandes nations hein, de uh, l'Occident Européen. These were France in the middle, and then to the north, England and Germany, to the south, Italy and Spain. And then a few bits and pieces, but that were just the appendices of the five great nations. And these five great nations had to be broken into 60 sociocratic republics. France, for example, 17, and the maximum size had to be Portugal or Ireland, but no country should be smaller than Belgium, he said. Uh, None of these sociocratic republics. Okay, that's the bits and pieces, and then, nevertheless, Europe as a whole, or l'Occident, so defined, had to also form a gouvernement, there had to be a gouvernement européen but only at the spiritual level, not the temporal level, and it had to provide in particular for uniform education throughout Europe, so defined, throughout the West. Okay, that's for Europe. What about democracy? Did he have anything to say about it? Yes. He didn't like it at all. (laughs) Sociocracy is not democracy. It didn't follow in the uh, footsteps of his master and predecessor, the Comte de Saint-Simon, who in 1814, while the Vienna Congress was still going on, was pleading for the creation of a Grand Parlement Européen, a great European Parliament, 1814. Comte didn't like that. What he believed in was, first, at the level of temporal power, so the 60 sociocratic republics, he strongly believed that the bankers were the natural generals of modern industry. (laughs) Therefore, each of these republics had to be governed by three bankers, three bankers. Not elected, there had to be some control. Every three years there was an assembly that had to check the accounts. But they couldn't choose the bankers, the bankers were simply chosen by their predecessors. So you had to start it somewhere, just the first generation had to consist of three proletarians, he said, rather than bankers, but then from then on it had to be bankers. So that's at the level of each of these uh, sociocratic republics. What about the spiritual power th- uh, to be exercised at the level of Europe as a whole? Well, there the model is uh, the medieval pope, of course secularized, so it had to be, this power had to be exercised by a pontiff, in each case appointed by his pre- predecessor. You had to start somewhere, how do you start? Very simple. The first pontiff is going to be Auguste Comte himself, who is going to. So that's uh, for democracy. As you can see, there is not much of democracy involved. And because you don't, if you don't believe in democracy, language is not really a problem. And he says a few things about languages, but frankly not that much. He has these ambitious programs between the ages of 7 and 14, uh, everyone will have learned the five principal modern languages, you will have guessed which one they are, they correspond to the five great nations mentioned before, to the degree necessary for reading with due appreciation the chief poetical compositions of each, not more. Huh? So that's uh, the ambition, of course it doesn't say how Europe as a whole is going to function, huh? you you can see each of the republic, that's simple, because they are all unilingual, these 60 republics. But <laughs> what about Europe as a whole? Well, as you can see, it will be very simple. It doesn't say it so much, but Paris will succeed Rome. So the pontiff called the first one will replace the Pope. And just in the same way, you'll have the Centre Francais, the French Centre, will retain, he says, the natural initiative bestowed on it forever, by the first part of the revolution, that is the 1789 revolution, so that just as Latin was the language of the Middle Ages, one can expect that with Paris at the center of the world or the Western world, uh, French will be the, the, the language in which uh, spiritual power will be exercised. So, anyway, for Comte, given that he doesn't believe in democracy, language is not a problem. As uh, John Stuart Mill is uh, correspondent, disciple to some extent, and then fierce critic uh, said despotic regimes can cope with multilingualism forever. You just need a very small elite of, poly- of multilingual people. That's all you need. But it's when you have democracy, when you have free institutions, that problems arise. And so John Stuart Mill was influenced by Kant especially in his first writings, but then devoted, at a later stage, uh, a long essay on Kant called Auguste Comte and Positivism, which ends with uh, a word, the very last word of the whole essay, sums it up, the very last word of the essay is ridiculous, which indicates the way in which he saw the evolution of Kant uh, as he went through his pretty chaotic uh, uh, later life. But What interests us from Mill is sort of summarized in a very famous paragraph in the very famous chapter 16 of one of the very first books on on democracy, systematic books on democracy, Mill's considerations on representative government. And this paragraph is really very cruel for anyone who believes in multilingual democracy. Here, is, here are the essential sentences. Mill says, after a long extended discussion of a number of cases, including the case of the Walloons and Flemings of Belgium, which he says is an exception as that stage, but we'll see later that it doesn't really count as an exception to this rule. After this long discussion, he concludes, free institutions by that he means democratic institutions, are next to impossible in a country made up of different nationalities. Among a people without fellow feeling, especially if they read and speak different languages, the united public opinion necessary to the working of representative government, meaning a democracy, cannot exist. The influences which form opinions and decide political acts are different in the different sections of the country. An altogether different set of leaders have the confidence of one part of the country and of another. The same books, newspapers, pamphlets, speeches do not reach them. And he concludes, for the preceding reasons, it is in general a necessary condition of free institutions, precondition of democracy, functioning of democracy, that the boundaries of governments should coincide in the main with those of nationalities and of course, of particular, in particular, of linguistic groups. So the conclusion is, once you have democracy, you'll need to have a quasi-coincidence between political borders and linguistic borders. Now, a number of years later, beginning of the following century, two people, two great theoreticians and two great political uh, leaders are going to say for the first time, in the context of a massively multilingual empire, yes we can or no we can. It's not true, uh, Mill, that uh, this is impossible. We are going to achieve it in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. 1902, Karl Renner, the future prime minister of. Austria in the interwar period, and indeed the first future first president of the Austrian Republic after the Second World War, Karl Renner, under first under a pseudonym uh, uh, in eighteen ninety-nine was then called Synopticon, wrote a little pamphlet called Statum Nation and then published a big treatise, 1902, second edition 1918, under the title das Selbstbestimmungsrecht der Nationen, the, right of self de- the Nation's Right of Self-Determination. A few years later, 1907, a very young lawyer, Carreno uh, uh, was a lawyer too, Otto Bauer, shortly after the, uh, uh, finishing his doctorate in law, published a magnificent book, 1907, called Die Nationalitätenfragen und die Sozialdemokratie, on the question of nationalities and uh, social uh, democracy and in both books they will defend the same idea in response to the same problem. The problem was how do you organize democracy in a political entity as multilingual, multinational as the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Their, uh, the way in which they saw their task was really doing what Mill claimed was impossible. Here is uh, an extract from 1902 book, where the nation state was so far considered the highest form of the state as the ideal of human collective life. Now the multinational state has become superior to it in terms of general interest and of significance for the history of civilization. Our mission, he says, is to find and illustrate the legal formulas which enable many peoples to form together, free and equal, a supranational state-like entity of a higher order than the nation state. What's their, the motivation for their proposal? Well, Both of them were leaders of a powerful social democratic party, one of the first uh, in, in the world at the time, and both of them were getting very impatient with the so-called, uh, the, the so-called national frage Both of them believed the primacy should be the social flag, the social question, and, the, prim- and, and the, the, the primacy should also be given to the classenkampf, to the class struggle, and not to the struggle between nations. And they discovered within their own parties, within the, labor t- uh, the the trade union movement, that the main conflict, the most violent conflict, the most emotional conflict, was between the linguistic groups, between the various national groups. So, they said, we need to handle that problem, we need to solve that problem first, and then we'll be able to concentrate ourselves exclusively to what is the main problem. And I needed to do that in such a way that I could accommodate what you could say is, was democratic imperative, and that is the, the, the requirement, once you have a democracy, that the people should be able to talk to each other, argue with each other, mobilize in their own language. In order to do so, you need, you need to devolve maximally. Whatever can be devolved to a unilingual level must be so, devolved and you must do that without dislocating the Habsburg Empire. uh, Reynolds uh, uh, quotes explicitly, finishes one uh, section of his book uh, by quoting the the song, uh, uh, L'International, which finishes with L'International, L'International sera le genre humain. And really what he sees as this task in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, is precise, precisely to, to be the forerunner of what we will need at the world level, namely something like a federation of nations. How can you do that? In principle, there are two formulas, the so-called territorial principle, a federalism of unilingual regions, or the personal principle, which would be a federalism of nations not defined in a territorial way. The most obvious at first sight is the first one, Uh, you devolve powers to nations uh, that would be uh, uh, homogeneous linguistically and they organize their own lives. But this is hopeless, let's say, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Why? Because the historical borders, so-called Kronländer, uh, Hungary, so on, uh, don't coincide with linguistic uh, borders. Also because the Austro-Hungarian Empire at the end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century, is massively uh, affected by capitalism-induced migration, huh? so that it changes all the time where these various nations, where the borders of these nations are. The economic logic is, of partition is at odds with the linguistic logic, huh? so what is best for, from a linguistic point of view is not at all what's optimal from an economic uh, point of view. And finally, some of the nations, some of the nationen are very widely and thinly spread over the whole of the empire. This holds in particular for, the, uh, which is their main concern for the German uh, and, uh, nation, but it holds also, and I put it in brackets for reasons to which I, I returned for the Jewish uh, nation. What's the alternative? They say we have the formula. The alternative is the personal principle. The personal principle of the evolution to geographically dispersed, well, in some cases concentrated, but in general dispersed language groups. And what they propose is some sort of combination of the two, but a pragmatic combination of the two, but with a primacy to the personal principle. Sketch it very quickly. They say there are eight nationen in the Austro Hungarian Empire Germans, Poles, Italians, Czechs, Slovenes, Slovaks, Magyars, and Croats and uh, you, uh, so each of them must be conceived as a federation of districts, some of them uninational and when unilingual and when there are several nations, two or three in the same district, then it's a federation of these partial districts. Each of the nations, each of these eight nations has its own parliament its own government with full autonomy as regards education culture and some matters of social policy who is a member of a nation it's not ascriptive it's not on the basis of your birth certificate you can choose to be a member of uh, the uh, the nation but once you are a member of the nation you have some rights you have the right to use the institutions educational culture etc social, social of the, that nation but you have a duty to pay its taxes. And all other matters are decided jointly by the various nationen involved at the level of each kreis, if there are several nations locally, or at a high level which they call a territorium, and then at the level of the Reich as a whole. Did it work? No, it didn't work. First of all, they never had the chance to really try it, because uh, they wrote their books, 1902, 1907, you had the First World War, and as a result of the First World War, the Austro-Hungarian fell into pieces, the pieces that were more or less stuck together then gradually unraveled, and the, the, one of the last uh, uh, bits of this unraveling was the separation of Czechia and Slovakia into separate states. It was, it's often said that the formula was nevertheless tried in a number of places, Estonia, Cyprus, Apartheid South Africa, in all these cases, it failed again. The only little uh, piece of territory where there is still something recognizably resembling their formula is in Belgium, and in fact only on uh, half a percent of the Belgian territory, namely in the capital of Brussels, where the two communities actually uh, overlap, and, uh, and in my view, in a uh, transitional unstable way I believe we should get rid of whatever is left of this formula. Why? Because it has a number of intrinsic problems I go, several of them discussed explicitly by uh, Bauch and uh, uh, Renner, I quickly go through them First of them, first of all uh, there is this sort of permanent tension in the whole of the system from the fear of invasion by the dominant group Bauch uh, speaks about that as the peaceful conquest by the more developed cultures, and by that he meant essentially the German culture in the Austro Hungarian context. That means uh, you had the, the Kafkas of uh, that world, so in all the main cities of the Austro Hungarian Empire, you had the German uh, minority, and of course, this German minority tended to be relatively rich relatively to the others. You had some sort of conversions to the German culture, but of course, that was precisely that was perceived. As invasion by the dominant culture in all these peripheral places, and the people who converted were regarded as traitors to uh, the dominant culture, which led to tension all over the place. First. Second, uh, you have, when you have, for example, the Czechs in Vienna at the time, poorer opportunities for poorer groups. Yes, I mentioned before, each of the nations can organize its own schools, but it has to pay for its own schools. The Czechs who immigrate into Vienna are on average poorer than the Germans who are in in Vienna. So they are there with their poorer schools for these poorer people and uh, leading to a situation of very unequal uh, apartheid uh, between the two sets uh, of schools. Bauer is aware of the problem and imagines various ways in which some solution could be negotiated but not very very, uh, convincing more generally in terms of opportunities or uh, even when there is no inequality in terms of uh, status, in terms of the wealth status, there is the, the, the problem that, the, say, the Czech immigrants into Vienna being stuck in their Czech schools would never acquire the sort of proficiency in the dominant language of the place where they live which they would have if they were sent to a German school. Indeed, Bauer, who was Jewish himself, saw that as a decisive argument to prevent the Jewish nation from being, or the Jewish people, from being recognized as a ninth nation within the Austro-Hungarian context. He said, no, for the sake of social promotion, of integration, it was essential there should be no schools organized in in Yiddish, as as he called it, despite the fact that, of course, the, the Jewish people were, was bigger than some of the eight uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in numbers uh, at the time. And, but if that argument is a good argument not to, to, to get the, the Jewish in, uh, the Jewish people uh, in these schools that would be less good in terms of social prospects, if that argument is good enough for the Jewish uh, people, why is it not good enough for the Czechish people or the Slovak people, and et cetera. Thirdly, there is this unavoidable spatial dimension of any political project. So if you say, well, education is, uh, is uh, devolved to the, to, to the nations uh, to these linguistic communities, yes, but in order to organize your school system, obviously this has some connection with town planning, with employment and so on, so how can you have a coherent pro- uh, a project, given that the unavoidable spatial dimension of any political project Finally, uh, you need at all levels, uh, and this is not explicitly uh, discussed by Bohr or Renner, but it's certainly my deep conviction why this is not the way to go. You need some sort of uh, inclusive uh, territorial uh, identity and some inclusive patriotism at the various levels, from the level of the neighborhood uh, to the level of a city, to the level of a region, which involves all the people living in these places, uh, whatever people, whatever nation, they belong to. Okay, so for all these reasons, so we have there the failure of the first systematic, impressive, theoretical attempt to think about democracy in a multinational, multilingual context. So, is this bad news for the European Union? Obviously not. Hmm. Why? Well, because in the case of the European Union, most of the dirty work that was needed for the Austro-Hungarian Empire has been done. That is, what I mean by this is simply the following. I started my whole story about Bauer and Renner with their reasons why they thought that in the Austro-Hungarian Empire you couldn't go for the territorial solution. But of course, in the European Union, you have the territorial solution, and because the European Union is building on the background of all these nation states, who have been doing all the dirty work of uh, nation building by assimilating all these populations, saying over 50% of the French, of, of the, the population that lived in the current territory of France at the end of the 18th century did not have French as a mother tongue. So you had the rouleau compresseur of the French educational system, uh, which has turned this uh, place into a nation in this sufficiently unilingual uh, nation. And similarly, the job of secession, uh, of cutting off the, the, in most places, there are still a few leftovers like Belgium, but in most places, the secession work has also been done so that you have, in fact, the bits and pieces, these 27 bits and pieces are far more homogeneous linguistically then the components of the Austrian-Hungarian uh, Austrian Empire at the time of Bau and Reynolds. So uh, there are still a few things to be done, but then you can have some soft ethnic cleansing of the sort illustrated by Luke earlier, like the move of my university of out of this town was a sort of uh, s- soft, I was going to say sweet, but uh, soft is mild uh, ethnic cleansing by way which uh, out uh, the, the process of getting this of making it possible for uh, this territorial devolution to give power democratic power to people who uh, speak the same language and then you can have a number of uh, other solutions like uh, i mean temporal transient facilities which you give to the people who are stuck on the wrong side of the border so There is no problem about uh, adopting the territorial option essentially in the European context. So what was blocked in the case of the Austro-Hungarian Empire is not in the case of the European Union. And this territorial option avoids the four problems I just mentioned for the the so-called personal option advocated by Bauch and Renner, uh, the various peoples feel safe ag- against the linguistic colonization by the domin- dominant groups if you settle somewhere in Slovakia or in Finland you have to learn the. if you settle there for uh, on a long term basis you, you are expected to uh, speak the local language so you are protected uh, against this linguistic colonization by the powerful groups linguistic groups there is equalization of opportunities for the poorer groups, uniform fund- funding and of course proficiency in the official language of the place is uh, required and uh, tends to be achieved for everyone, whatever the mother tongues. Uh, Of course you have this bridging through joint education of the people with the various uh, linguistic backgrounds and finally you can achieve then this inclusive territorial uh, patriotism uh, from the level of the neighborhood to because everyone attends the same schools, has a common language, etc. So You you can go for the territorial option, which is obviously better for these reasons than the so-called personal option. Is this enough? Well, all we've done with this, uh, with this this territorial solution, and this uh, uh, is to provide a sensible way of keeping most policy uh, options. Uh, most policy-making, sorry, decentralized at the level of unilingual polities. But, of course, the central problem, in right, both sense of central here, the central problem of, of multilingual democracy remains, namely, how can the center function democratically despite linguistic diversity? Uh, so, okay, we can devolve uh, at the territorial level, so, and these territories are sufficiently homogeneous linguistically, but how do we function at the centre. Well, let's find out. Our, um, my dear, uh, I'll quote him in a minute. So, the, the, my dear colleague James Fishkin. I'll let you read this in a minute. But uh, uh, some, several of you in the room certainly know James Fishkin, who is a professor at Stanford University and is ever so keen on uh, a deliberative polls, not polls, on on organizing deliberation with a random sample of people from a particular population. He's done it in several countries, and he thought, now let's try something more difficult. Let's do it at the European level in the European Parliament. And off he went to the building of the uh, European Parliament in Brussels and uh, he uh, discovered immediately that the things may be more difficult there than what he had experienced so far, and indeed on the DVD which he sent me, you can hear him saying, will the language differences defeat the possibility of mutual understanding? That's one of the challenges. You have 23 languages in 27 countries. It's a much more complicated business than I thought. It could be a complete failure, he said with some English on his face. But then comes the smile. But if it is a complete failure, he said, it will show that there is something mad about Europe. (laughs) And in a comment on the experiment, by uh, uh, just a few days after it happened, uh, uh, Timothy Garton Ash says the following: What made this one more this uh, um, deliberative polling more difficult than all previous deliberative polls was less the logistics than the linguistics. Interpretation and translation costs amounted to £175,000 for just one weekend. Here is the real obstacle to Europe-wide deliberative democracy. It's not the famous Brussels bureaucrats. There is no public deliberative democracy, no equivalent of national political controversies, no mass continent-wide conversation. Remember Mills' quote? or, in a more pretentious jargon, no European public sphere. And the biggest single reason for this is quite simply that we speak and think in so many different languages. The heart of Europe's democracy problem is not Brussels, it is Babel. (laughs) Is there a solution? Well, a number of years after the First World War, when people started thinking, well. We need to try to sort out our problems in, in Europe in a more systematic way. There were people in France, in particular, who started, who thought they had the idea, something like the United States of Europe. Julien Benda wrote then a discours à la nation européenne, a title explicitly inspired by uh, Fichte's very famous Reden an die deutsche Nation uh, of more than one century earlier. And what does Julian Benda say? He says the people of Europe, if they want to unite, will need to adopt a common language which will be superposed to their national languages in the same way as in each of their nations the national language got superposed to the local idioms and which will be granted some sort of moral primacy. What will you have to propose as a supranational language? The answer is obvious. French. What, you might say, this language so ill-suited to express the depth of human being, of the human being, this eminently rational language? This is the language you want to make the language of Europe? The language you claim Europe will accept? I say that if you want to make Europe, you have to get her, Europe, to accept it, French, indeed to accept it precisely because of its rationality. For the task of today's Europe, he says, is to reinstate among its members the supreme esteem for the rational part of man, for the Socratic spirit, for the French genius. (laughs) Laugh, laugh, but there there may be something in it, right? Okay. Yeah, who thinks... It's not funny? No, let's return to this in a minute. Okay, it just... just the self-evident way in which it's asserted. But then he didn't expect this to be quoted 75 years later in London, when he was meant to write to the European nation expressing itself in French. So, let's now test whether what he just said should happen uh, is happening in reality. And here I want to... Uh, live up to the expectations that these Kant lectures because my brief was uh, expressed here in the, what I quote here in the first invitation I received, these lectures sh- shall be on any aspect of scientific or philosophical thought or human activity, suppose I mean this is okay uh, preferably it says approach from a broad historical positive and humanist standpoint, so I thought I wouldn't be sort of really up to the standards of a Kant lecture if I didn't have some empirical facts to uh, provide and indeed also some analysis of these facts and I'll use them in order to answer the question is Julien Benda's requirement of linguistic uh, superposition as he called it on the way to be satisfied and the answer is yes and no here is. Let me quickly go through uh, a few uh, of these graphs. This indicates is based on uh, Eurobarometer languages 2006, so which is data for 2005, indicating in this case the proportion of the human of sorry proportion of the European population Euro 25, that is without Bulgaria and Romania. In the various age groups, 65 plus, 45 to 65, 25 to 44, in fact, and 15 to 24. Uh, in these various age groups, so what is the proportion of U25 who have the various, the main languages, European languages, as their native language? That's uh, the uh, uh, so that's the question, and I'm presenting these data in this direction, and so from the older generation to the uh, new generation, so as to capture the dynamics at work. This is mother tongue only, and you can see there are a number of things happening. The most striking among them, it's the only one on which I have comment here, is the fall in the proportion of the European population with German as the mother tongue. Uh, fall, which is Partly captured by the demographic problem in Germany, but also hidden by uh, that uh, uh, the demographic demographics for Germany as a whole. Because, as we'll see on data graphs, in fact, uh, the, uh, there is a, a significant proportion, growing pop- proportion, of the German population which doesn't have German as the mother tongue in the younger generation. But essentially, what we can see is that German uh, is certainly for the older generation, but even for the younger generation, it is the first European language. We can see that French has overtaken both uh, uh, Italian, which is hidden by English there. Uh, uh, English is in red, Italian in, in grey. French has overtaken both English and Italian. Indeed, Italian has even fallen below Polish uh, as uh, for the younger generation. But Language dynamics is of course not only indeed not mainly a question of mother tongue and so if you look at the if you look this is on the left it's the same graph but just compacted so that as you can see with the fall of German at the top, and on the right you have a uh, the same sort of graph, but for the learned language. Uh, so in each case, in this case, it's self-declaration of the people: which languages do you know well or very well? If you don't have that language as your mother tongue, you can see here that uh, German is ahead of French. But uh, whereas it was at the same level for the older people, uh, for the younger people, it's ahead of French. But not because German has become more popular as a foreign language, but because whereas the French maghrebin have been fully assimilated into French and don't learn French as a second language, the uh, people of Turkish origin in Germany learn German as a second language. You can see that Russian, which appeared as the fourth language, uh, learned language for the middle generation, is falling uh, quite a bit below uh, Spanish for the younger generation, but of course you don't need glasses or binoculars in order to see that by the, there is there a massive phenomenon happening and in a way something that was uh, uh, wished by, and by Julien Benta, but it's not the uh, blue language that is emerging it's the red language and uh, we can see that the knowledge of English is just massively uh, spreading through uh, the younger generation. If you took if you take the two components together, mother tongue and uh, learned language, you can see that uh, it's about two-thirds of the uh, European population among the young who uh, say they are competent in English, they speak English well or very well, whereas for the older generation, uh, English was the second language after German if you take both components uh, into account. There's a background in some countries, just to give one illustration, in the case of Belgium, you can see that in the case of Belgium, English is well on its way. You have French at the top, learned or mother tongue, then Dutch, and you can see that English is on its way to becoming Belgium's first language so measured. There will be, uh, in not very long, for the younger generation, you can see that uh, there will be more people speaking English well or very well than either of the two main national languages. Why is all this happening? Very briefly, not because of a US plot or because of a, even less, because of a British plot. As you, can, as you will see shortly, uh, the Brits will be long-term losers in the whole process. No, it's due to the explosive interaction of two very simple mechanisms which you've experienced many times. One is probability-sensitive learning, how quickly, how well you learn a language, is strongly dependent on the probability with which you can be expected to speak it, both because of a motivation aspect. If you know you are going to have to speak it, you invest in it, money and time, but even more because of the opportunity aspect. So your main language teachers, all of you here, are not the people who've been paid to do so, but the people who were patient enough to listen to you in a language which you didn't master fully and thereby gave you the opportunity to practice it. So for these two reasons uh, so the probability of speaking a language is strong, is, is the main determinant of the learning of that language. But there is a second mechanism uh, which then interacts strongly with that one and it's slightly more subtle but again you've had all the multilinguals among you and I can't see a single unilingual in the room uh, all the m- multilinguals among you have experienced that thousands of times when you meet uh, others, other people who have a, a different repertoire of languages from yours. One, two, three, ten. The language you are going to pick for the interaction will not be the, the, the best defined as the, the criterion, will not be pick the best language of the majority or the mother tongue of the majority. Don't, the criterion will not be pick the language for which the average knowledge is highest. The criterion will be, pick the language for which the minimum knowledge is highest. To illustrate, you, suppose you know only English, and you, you meet a, a group of, uh, of Spaniards, who all know some not very well, some better, who know some Spanish, and you have to interact. And the context is such that I can't just ignore you. So they want to include you in the conversation. Well, average knowledge is maximized if you picked uh, uh, Spanish. The democratic principle, to pick the language of the majority, would of course also be satisfied if you picked uh, Spanish. And yet, English will be picked because because of including you and because of achieving communication at the lowest cost. And so therefore, you just pick the language for which minimal knowledge is maximized. As soon as there is someone among the Spaniards whose English is clearly better than your Spanish, English will be chosen. And, I mean, just, I mean, me, I mean, all of you have already had just now three, four cases where you remember, yes, that's exactly what happened. But this interacts in an explosive way with probability-sensitive learning. Why? Because, of course, the, if, if distribution is such that English is picked, huh, then you anticipate that, and, and other people invest in the learning of English, and also because English was picked at the end of the conversation, huh, the English of the Spaniards with whom you in- interacted is slightly, if only slightly improved, and you, Spanish, is still as pathetic as it was before. And so, and so you you just have, I mean, the, the virtual circle for the learners of English and the vicious circle for uh, the the people who might otherwise have learned uh, Spanish. Okay, so that's the, the, we saw the mechanism, we saw, um, well, I showed some of the trends, Uh, we saw the mechanism, what explains it, so, but the question, uh, beyond the positive aspect, why does it happen is, what should we do? Should we tolerate this process, block it, accelerate it? My answer is clear, let's accelerate it, Let's go a la benda, even though it's the wrong language on which we have to do it, for the sake of cheap and effective transnational deliberation, transnational mobilization. So it's for the sake of democracy, but also for the sake of what democracy is for, and for me, ultimately, it's justice on the global scale. Let's accelerate it. How do we do it? Well, first of all, what we must go for is a democratization of of competence. It will be done automatically through this maximum in dynamics. And we can see that the more English spreads, the more English will be learned huh? because of the process I just mentioned. But there are other ways of accelerating the process. And let me just, to, 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 to illustrate, give you a final graph of this sort, which is this. A major determinant of language learning in, throughout Europe, in some of the countries and not in others, is... It uh, corresponds to the distinction between the subtitling countries and the dubbing or voiceover countries. Wherever subtitling is being used for the films on television, you have a fast and early learning of English. W- in all those countries whose language is big enough to make dubbing profitable, the governments de facto accept or organize the systematic handicapping of their youth, especially the least favored, the most disadvantaged of their youth, by preventing them from learning English by having all this American trash sent to them, broadcasted to them, dubbed in their own language instead of uh, being, uh, dubbed, uh, being left in, in American. And you can see that uh, if you compare the two parts of Of Belgium, you can see this in a vivid way. In part, you you can see that on the on the francophone side, the knowledge of uh, of uh, Dutch is far lower than the knowledge of French on the on the the Flemish side, because of the maximin trap mentioned before. When a francophone meets a Fleming, and because the the francophone of the Flemish then of the, the the Flemish people tends to be so much better than the Dutch of uh, the Francophone people at the end of the, of course, they opt for, for French because it's easier, and at the end of the conversation, well, you have what I uh, mentioned before, which is that the, the, Francophone, the Francophone Dutch is as pathetic as it was before, and the, the French of the Fleming is even better than, than it was at the start. That's what, what explains is different in level, but it doesn't explain the difference in the knowledge of English. And you can see that in in Flanders, where all the films are dubbed, you can see that the knowledge of English, especially of the younger people, huh, is far below, be, uh, far beyond the level of English of the Francophones, uh, despite the fact that, on average, the Francophones have more English at school than the Dutch, uh, than, than the, the Flemish kids, because the Flemish kids have no option as a second language. That's their, their first foreign language is necessarily French, whereas on the Walloon side, they can choose between English and, uh, and Dutch. And it cannot be explained by the linguistic distance between the two languages and English, because, as you know, English is just a mishmash of French and Flemish. Uh, but, um, <laughs> so it can't be said to be closer to one uh, than to the other. But, uh, and, and in fact, when you look at the international data, you can see that the, the English of the young Greeks or of the young Finns is better than the English of the young Germans. So it's not a question of linguistic distance. So there are simple, cheap, extremely cheap ways of improving the knowledge of English and democratizing the knowledge of English in Europe, but it's just a matter of finding the legal tricks and the political courage to uh, do it. At the same time, second thing, uh, the European institutions and European personalities must really, without hesitate, hesitation, apologies, go for communication in English. Some institutions, as we saw for the European Parliament, with all these uh, words saying group visits and so on, hesitate about it. Uh, the, this is the building of the Council of Ministers in Brussels who, in fact, all. Their dare to put on their building is in Latin. It says uh, "Concilium, Presidente," and so on. Only once did they dare to go beyond Latin to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome. And then they thought, "What can we do? Can we put it in Latin? It will look sound a bit vieux." Or so. So, and I went for Italian. I thought uh, that's after all the closest there is to to Latin. So you have "Ela Naveva," but they were they couldn't uh, say very much in this way. The European Commission has no hesitation. And uh, so they say, well, in order to communicate in an effective way, for example, say, solving your problems faster in Europe, they just say it in English. Just imagine if you had to put that in the 23 languages on the same space, it wouldn't have sounded very plausible that you can solve it uh, fast, right? <laughs> But even when it's a matter of welcoming Bulgarian Romania in uh, Brussels, you don't do it in Bulgarian or Romanian, you do it in English. It, to celebrate equality, just do it in English. Forget about equality between languages. So, uh, <clears throat> and <clears throat> then there was the poster, which was at the very, I showed at the very beginning, and, uh, where, which is quite remarkable because it's the first electoral poster which I saw addressed to the whole of the uh, European population because it was not done by one of the institutions but by the alliance of liberals and democrats for europe and the language the EU should speak is not English that's just taken for granted the language uh, it should speak is the simple language a language without jargon without bureaucratic uh, you know all these things and speak simply to the people that's what they I mean by that but obviously when you uh, talk to the whole of the population you do it in that uh, language okay so I'm not going to go then uh, into uh, the question of whether this choice of English is unfair. This is precisely what I'm writing the book about, which uh, uh, Luke mentioned uh, under the title, uh, Linguistic Justice for Europe and for the World. Nor shall I mention what, um, uh, I'll just mention it, but without developing what is the third element in the winning package. I say, yes, we can, but we need, in fact, three things. We need uh, and what I called earlier territorial subsidiarity that is devolution of as much as possible to the level, the unilingual level of national polities. Okay, that's the first component huh? that, the, and that I introduced and in contrast to the personal devolution and devolution to uh, linguistic commun- non-territorial linguistic communities that was advocated by Bauer and Renner in an interesting but unconvincing way that's the first element so subsidiarity so that most of the decision can be taken by polities that are unilingual the second component is that nevertheless we need a way of communicating with each other and that is the lingua franca and this lingua franca is going to be English it raises issues of fairness that that need to be addressed but I'm not doing that here and then there is a third element that's uh, essential, which is uh, this uh, designing institutions. We can't run a multilingual polity like the European Union, but also Switzerland or Belgium or Canada in the same way as unilingual uh, polities. We need special, we need to adjust the democracy, we need special devices. And uh, had I more time, I would, I can return to that in discussion, I would go through a number of uh, suggestions or ways that uh, things are happening in some sometimes with some success in some places in particular we need to make sure we have something like real transnational political parties, one and that will not happen spontaneously two, we need something like European referenda but not of the sort we've had uh, so far uh, in the European context rather on the pattern of what um, happens in the country in which one third of all the national referenda in the world have been happening, namely uh, Switzerland, and thirdly we need a stronger pan-European civil society. So I won't go into that, I'll just conclude uh, by saying my conclusion is very simple, it's simply, uh, yes we can, which was uh, the title of my second part. But Uh, Of course, yes, we can, but we need to remember Timothy Garton Ash's uh, remark, which I quoted uh, at the end of the passage I quoted, the heart of Europe's democracy problem is not Brussels, it's Babel. So perhaps the problem about Babel was that people were trying to build the tower in the wrong place. And so now we need to build the tower in Brussels and I have good news. good news I just received tonight a picture of the work that's going on in Brussels that took a number of houses uh, 19th century houses about the time of Auguste Comte and have been that's just started to put them together in order to start something like a tower that may be finally located in the right place, namely Brussels given that, Timothy Garten, Ash said, given that the problem is not Brussels, it was Babel it was a choice of Babel that was the wrong things to do. So we are on the way. Yes, we can.
2: Can
3: we just ask you about the territoriality part of the thing? Because uh, uh, when you when, you, uh, when Renner and Bauer considering this, I mean they rejected it for a number of reasons and some of which you pointed out no longer applied, but uh, the one, the one, one of the ones that does still seem to apply is this um, clash between the sort of economic logic and the, uh, and the cultural logic. So I wondered if you could say a bit more about that because I mean it seems that there's this potential for you know, migration induced by economic factors and so on to be continually undermining the territoriality principle.
1: Yes, so I mean, there are many dimensions uh, to that question. So the the way in which uh, there saw the clash at the point where I mentioned it is that uh, there was no reason to expect the optimal boundary drawing from an economic point of view to coincide with what happened to be, through history, the the limits between the various uh, language groups. And it's precisely for that reason that we need... Or political organization beyond the level at which this unilingualism can be achieved hmm? so in a way the European Union but also the subsistence of countries such, such as Belgium huh, is precisely justified huh? let's right? apart from the explanation of why they survived which may not be the same but in my view it's justified by the fact that you need uh, you, you need a, a level of economic and social decision making at a level that goes beyond uh, the level of this linguistic homogeneity. This is, for example, a recurrent problem in the case of uh, the the organization of uh, the political authority over Brussels and around Brussels, because the the region of Brussels is just the central neighborhood of a much larger uh, economic area that cannot be managed in a sensible way if you don't manage it as a whole, but part of it is in unilingual Flanders, part of it in unilingual uh, Wallonia, and part of it in so-called bilingual Brussels. So many people say we need to expand it, but you can't on the ground um, because of a clash with the million imperative, a imperative of saying, well, try to make people, dec- I mean, for the sake of democracy, try to devolve things as much as possible to the level in which they can talk with each other in the same language. But for that reason, we need something as big, uh, relatively big as Belgium, and something as big as the European Union because of all the economic interdependencies which can't care less about language borders.
0: Thank you very much for your presentation. Now, um, during your presentation, you have suggested that um, if um, Europe decided to coalesce around English as a common language that would not be to the benefit of the native speakers. You made me curious and you didn't pursue that. Okay.
1: Right. Well, there is a a paradox, which is um, that the more English spreads worldwide as a lingua franca, the better it is for Anglo territory and the worse it is for Anglo people. And again, your personal experience will soon illustrate all this. Um, first, the worst it is for Anglo people, huh? well, you have this Maximin dynamics, which will make it ever easier for anyone who's not English to learn English, because you'll keep meeting people with whom you are going to speak English. In fact, for the average Citizen of the Euro- young citizen of the Europe of, of continental Europe today, most of the people, the huge majority of the people with whom they are going to speak English, on average, are not going to, are, are going to be non Anglophones. They are going to be other people who learn English as a foreign language and who will help them learn English. So, as a result of all that, it will become ever cheaper, ever easier, especially if you have non dubbed films and so on, to learn English. But at the same time, it will be increasingly difficult for all of us to learn and to retain a language which is not English, because even if we know some German, if I know some uh, German, I have less and less opportunities to speak the German because to speak my German because uh, the people, my uh, the German friends I meet, have a level of English that is such that the maximum language between us is English and not uh, German. So, and this holds in particular for the Anglophones. So that, as a result of that, the Anglophones will be stuck in the maximin trap. So wherever they go, uh, and they make, the, they have, they learn in advance, and, and they are there. They make every effort on the day they arrive in Rome, and they say, uh, "Scusi, signor Ray Ray," and then own uh, uh, cappuccino, and then, uh, and then the other one saying "Fantastico, che meraviglia che parla," and then uh, now let's get to business and what did you want exactly <laughs> and so that uh, and, and you have that all over and so you have to and so of course you are discouraged so the motivation aspect disappears and then and the opportunity aspect disappears and so in the long term what will happen is that everyone in the world will be bilingual except for the anglophones and the big winners of course you are more of a winner if the language you know in addition to English is uh, widely spread so that the big winners in, tomo- in tomorrow's world will be the Chinese, not because, precisely because Mandarin was not chosen as the lingua franca, because they'll be bilingual with those two languages, whereas the anglophones will just be stuck with English. And the, the paradox is that at the same time, uh, and we can see that now, including the, the figures I saw this morning, at the same time, if your language is the lingua franca of the world, the whole of the world will find it very easy, not very onerous, not not very costly, to move to your place, so that the Anglo territory of the world can uh, serve as an attractor uh, for the rest of the world. It can be choosy about who to accept. I read in The Times this morning that 1,300,000 citizens of Uh, the EU, from outside Britain, lives in the United Kingdom today, 1,300,000. And this can be turned, of course, into some people are not happy about it, as uh, the Times also reported, and many other sources report, but uh, you can see that it's also a long-term advantage. Just think about the following figure. The brain gain of the OECD so the, the people with tertiary, uh, tertiary degree, and tertiary education degree, who work in the OECD and were born outside, uh, this comp- uh, the, the excess of these people over the people who uh, were born in the OECD and work outside. So the brain gain so defined for the whole of the OECD is 11 million people. Okay? Taken by the OECD, net Uh, from the rest of the world. Out of these 11 million, how many on the Anglo part of the OECD? Out of these 11 million, the answer is 13 million. 13 million out of 11 million. Okay? That means that the whole of the net gain, of the net brain gain of the OECD uh, from the rest of the world is seized by the Anglo part of the OECD in addition, the Anglo part of the OECD has pinched, sucked Two million uh, brains met from the rest of the OECD. Him, for example, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? So, so that's, and so that shows this sort of huge paradox, and that the, the long term losers will be these miserable Anglophones who will be stuck with a single language, right? But at the same time, the big winners uh, in terms of territories will be the Anglo territory of the world, as shown already in these World Bank data I just mentioned. Does this clarify what's indeed I didn't clarify in my talk? Okay. There's a question
3: there in the back. I would like to explore a, a point that I, I think may lead to a pa- paradox, but I'm not entirely sure in, in, in the way that you, you think about things. And it picks up on the point that you, you, you made earlier. If, if we see that the democracy, to a large extent, is trying to figure out what to do with fiscal resources, right? I mean, it, it's not just that, but it is to a large extent in advanced um, ke- kebab capitalist societies. That is, you, you are taxed, and you then define co- collectively what you do with those taxes. Then. Is it the case, I, I am not sure whether it is, but I would like you to, to, to tell me whether it is or not in, in, in your model. Is it the case that that must ultimately then lead to a government that is defined at the highest level? So that in other words, you need to think then, is it at some level of a European go- go- government with taxation and spending powers that are um, defined at that level. But the implication of that if we don't think for a moment about fis- fiscal fe- federalism, which would be the, the obvious well, or per- perhaps not, but which would be a way it out that would mean that the subsidiarity prin- principle that was underlying a lot of the dynamics that you identified, that that subsidiarity principle comes under pressure per- permanently, and that in other words, the idea that you have, you know, your, your, your logic leads to a European go- government at some level. And that that power that you centralize there is going to come into conflict with precisely these ethnically homogeneous but um, diverse groups that exist within all of Europe.
1: Yes. Um, Well, let me just briefly explain the way I think about it. I don't think that democracy is a name in itself. Right? Democracy is not a value in itself. Democracy is just a family of Collective decision mechanisms uh, that have certain features, and this feature, something that can be called government of the people by the people, is required in order to achieve what democracy is there for. What is it there for? Justice. What we need. The ultimate aim is justice. At what level? Global justice. Right. So, what the way in which I think about this is just that we need to design in our city, in our country. On our continent, our island—for those who live on an island—or uh, and on the uh, at the world level, we need to design institutions that will best contribute to, uh, in the safest way, fastest way, to uh, global justice. And global justice is, includes global—not only but global distributive justice, fair distribution of resources on the world scale. Okay, and for that purpose, we need a way of collecting resources for distributive purposes in a pretty central way, because the more mobility there is in this world of capital, of human capital, people, uh, the less our mini-welfare states, our national welfare states, can do the job which they used to do pretty well in the past. Because the the more mobility there is, uh, the more power the powerful individuals, the powerful firms, have at the expense of the people who are less mobile, more vulnerable, and uh, are left behind. If we don't manage to organise at high level, so I do believe that we need the European Union partly because we, for our own sake, but also as a model of what is needed elsewhere in the world, and as a model of what we'll need in the world as a whole. And so we need. A European that works well to achieve a number of purposes but the fiscal purpose, the purpose of redistribution that can be done in all sorts of ways is certainly central that's how I think about the issue you raised
0: uh, You mentioned the need for European political parties uh, or loose groupings, what do you see as the problem with the current uh, group political groupings on a European level?
1: Well, that, that it's just a confederation of uh, political parties and not uh, uh, a real, uh, and not a set of political parties, that don't form a set of political parties that are claiming to defend, that are really claiming in a credible way to defend the European common interest. So let, let me just um, uh, perhaps draw a, a parallel that will indicate also why I think quite. Um, uh, I mean, it's an uh, uh, issue close to my heart and indeed close to one of the initiatives which was mentioned by Luc earlier, which is this Pavia uh, initiative. In the case, in the Belgian case, and we no longer, since the Louvain affair, the, 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 the expulsion of the, of the Francophone University from the old town of, of Louvain, we no longer have national parties, contrary to Switzerland or, to, or even to Canada. So we, we only have uh, so linguistic parties, uh, so Flemish parties and uh, Francophone parties, within each political family. Uh? So you have a Francophone socialist party, a Flemish socialist party, etc. And the result is that the, the political competition is really between two sets on parties of parties on each side. So as soon as you have some significant uh, issues to be decided by the national parliament and the national government uh, in a party political way, you have uh, competition on both sides, between the parties on both sides, uh, that then press for their own parties when they take part in the government and press for uh, their own Flemish interest or Francophone interest and then their the, the clash against each other, so that the, the politicians represent communities rather than political ideologies. And the same, of course, is happening at the European level, where in fact the key decisions are taken by, the, uh, in the present situation by the, the, the Council of the European Union, or the Council of Ministers on certain issues, and where you, the people who are there negotiate for their countries and rather than for their political ideologies. So what we need uh, is a, a far stronger uh, link, uh, bond between the various components of the political parties within each political uh, family. And this can be achieved, I think, at the European level through a combination of two things. One is to have in Europe too a Europe-wide constituency for some of the seats for the European Parliament, so that 50 or. Or even 25 seats would be allocated on a Europe-wide, where people would stand and campaign at the European level. So that uh, and so they would need to be known at the European level, and they would need to present programs that will be defended at that level. So from uh, in Slovakia as well as uh, as in Portugal or or in Ireland. Okay, that's one thing. And secondly, you need to increase the stakes of the European elections by saying, for example, that it is the winner on that constituency or the winner uh, or the party that wins uh, uh, in in the overall number of seats that will determine who is going to be the president of the Council of the European Union or the president of the commission whatever uh, emerges. And so you really need that in order to achieve what we don't have at the moment only very marginally which is strong redistributive powers vested at the European level as soon as you have that of course what will be politically at stake will be far greater than now we need that for the reasons I mentioned before and in order for that to work in a healthy way we need far stronger political parties that are trans, pan-Europeans transnational and not just a loose confederation as we have now
3: What was the uh, result of the, ex- of the Fishkin
0: experiment? Uh, he, he asked the question at the beginning, did it turn out to be mad uh, and if there was any successful deliberation did it happen in English or, or was there a, a multi-language way of doing it?
1: Yeah, well the <laughs> there was a, a, they had to perform in, in, in a multilingual way, that's 175,000 pounds were spent on something but it turned out to be extremely complicated to organize compared to Anything early organized because obviously you couldn't have, uh, there were not just the plenaries where all the the interpreters were present, but you had all the small groups. And so, in all the small groups, in fact, in order to to make sure that in each of these small groups, the languages for which interpreting would be provided uh, would be all the languages in which, or would include all languages in at least one of which, each of the participants on the, of these groups would be competent, and it did turn out to be a sort of a mathematical exercise for which uh, Jim, Jim Ficklin was not prepared. And so, so the, the and so, but this, I mean, really, in part, it was a reductio ad absurdum to try to have something like deliberative democracy if you don't have convergence to a single language. Because, uh, and some people sometimes say, well, especially the people who defend a language who, which has a chance of being included if the number of lingua francas is increased. And so, and especially then the French, to some extent the Germans, to some extent the Spaniards, sometimes even the Italians, they say, why don't, do we need just one lingua franca? Why don't we leave the choice between two? Hmm? Oh, and, and then, if the French says between two, then immediately you hear, you hear a, a, a voice that says, <laughs> and why uh, not three? And then, uh, and then, uh, and so on. So you, you are a bit in a problem for, for, for that reason. But even irrespective of, of whether or not you can stop somewhere in the list, if you say you can choose between two, two languages. And then you, you mix these people. And some said, well, I'm Hungarian, and I learned French, and the other one is Portuguese and learned English, and they still have no language in common. Uh, so that in order for deliberative democracy to work smoothly, you need really convergence to a single language. It just happens. I mean, the uh, chance, history, luck, bad luck, what, good luck, bad luck, I, uh, who, who can say that it is English, and we need to have convergence to that single language, and that will enable people to communicate in a cheap efficient way and this is particularly important for the weakest and those who represent the weakest because the strong they can pay for the interpreting they can pay for good quality translation which is very very hard and most of them anyway themselves and their children can speak English have learned English because they could send their kids to to Oxford Cambridge or even the LSE, right so so the the the, the they know it, but it's for all the weaker ones uh, who have those people need to to, to converge in english that they, they must and it 's really hi- hypocritical on the part, parts of the elites in some of these countries to say, "No, no, we need to defend our languages and then that prevent the learning of English by some o- of the, the the weaker parts of, of the population so the, 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 the main lesson uh, hardly learned uh, i mean learned in the hard way by uh, by Jim Fishkin is really that it's a completely different sort of exercise to, to, to try to, to organize deliberation when you have a multilingual entity. You need uh, to organize in a far more refined way, and it's far more costly as long as you don't have a common lingua franca. Once you have a lingua franca, it's much the same as everyone, everyone, everywhere else except that you have to be more careful that everyone really gets the chance to express him or herself.
2: Uh, you have uh, delineated very uh, well the spatial dimension of uh, the various political p- projects, which somehow uh, underlie most of what you have presented. Um, now, at the same time, of course, we saw the crafts, uh, with the advance uh, of the English language, uh, the lingua franca. Uh, you mentioned China, uh, Chinese uh, uh, situation with a completely different alphanumeric uh, situation, but uh, we, you have to, to my mind, also in your very inclusive uh, grasp of complex uh, developments, you have to include uh, the markets a little uh, uh, more Sorry question there about the fiscal uh, side. It means the territorial aspect of the fiscal side. uh, That means quite simply the globalization of markets obviously played a big role in the advance of the lingua franca. Not just in uh, in Brussels say, in in, in Belgium, but uh, of course also in the area which you uh, seem more and more to Know well, that means say uh, in the United States, uh, Spanish question. Now, what interests me is that you mention uh, a person, you know, say Ash, Timothy Ash, and his concerns. Uh, If I look (laughs) at other folks in the media, Atali, for instance, he, in today's Wall Street Journal, okay, a Murdoch thing. Nevertheless, has a grasp of uh, the framework in which you have to bed your questions, which is uh, quite useful. I would uh, strongly advise everybody to read today's uh, Atali uh, uh, article in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, uh, it would be too complex to read a few uh, points out. But what it, of course, is, uh, what it of course boils down to is the end of the dominance of the United States and therefore also the city of London. Uh, that therefore, uh, the, the economic power behind the dynamism of the lingua franca presently. And uh, somehow, of course, uh, you know, there are new uh, 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 aspects entering the project, which is territorial-based, which we need answers from you.
1: Right. Something requires answers from me, but you—you you said many things, and I'm not quite sure what the question is. Let me just uh, uh, reply to to one aspect, which is, of course, the, the 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 current spread of the lingua franca is related to the power and the dynamism of the United States, and uh, earlier, to some extent, still now of the United Kingdom, but essentially to the colonization by the United Kingdom and then dynamism of, of, the, of the United States. No doubt if the United States had not won the First World War and the Second World War, the linguistic situation of Europe and of the world would be different from what it is now. Is it, to what extent is it still dependent on that? If we had a, a massive collapse of the American economy and, and a, a, a takeoff or further takeoff of the Chinese economy, will, not, will it not uh, change things radically? i don 't think so, I think even if the United States disappeared uh, now there is uh, such a momentum uh, of uh, simply because English is there not for people to talk with the Americans but for people to talk to each other hmm? i was uh, to to illustrate I, I on on Monday this week I uh, was visited by charlemagne himself, so charlemagne uh, that is not uh, the one who, someone who was a king a very long time ago, but uh, the uh, journalist who writes under that pseudonym for uh, The Economist, right? And uh, uh, he, he's called Charlemagne because The Economist is located on the Boulevard Charlemagne, just on the other side of the square where I live in Brussels, right? So he came, it was not far for him to come. And one of the things he wanted to put to me on the basis of some, of some stuff he he read was uh, this sort of strange things that what he discovered, I think, with some uh, fear that more and more European media, such as Spiegel, uh, El Pais, and so on, were putting up English language uh, uh, websites. And uh, the paradox on which he wanted to have my reaction is that when the Spiegel people, or El Pais people, or Politiken, a Danish thing, and so on, uh, uh, tried to find out who was looking at their websites. They found out that there were very few British people uh, uh, checking their websites. So, and it came as, a, in, in, as an initial surprise to him, because uh, he thought, well, if these people write in English, it must be, in order to be read by the English who can't read Spanish, or German. no is to talk to each other. Huh? So that, and this illustrates the, the autonomy that has been acquired by English. When people learn English, it's not to acquire British culture. They don't at- uh, acquire British culture. It's not to talk to the Brits. To some extent, they talk to the Brits too. They won't ignore them. But uh, it's mainly and increasingly to talk to each other. So that it has really acquired the dynamics, that ha- ha- a momentum that's quite independent from the not fully independent, uh, but uh, significantly independent from the, uh, the the cultural and the economic power of the anglophone parts of the world. You
0: have to help help. Yeah. 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 Let's, let's cut this off. Let's cut this off. We
1: need.
0: Okay. The well, the I'll park, read the italic. <laughs> um, uh,
1: do you? Uh, I know he talked about this Do you? Do you care about um, languages dying out? Are you? Do you think it matters? I don't. I don't. <laughs> I think. I, I really think. Well, I mean, this is a, As such, no. I, I don't. I really think that the that uh, the failure of Babel was a curse. I think there is, what is it to have language diversity? Uh, Languages are distinct languages to the extent that people who speak one language don't understand uh, the people who speak the other language. It's mutual unintelligibility that's a criterion for language diversity. What's so great about not understanding each other? (laughs) Huh? So, so, that the, the f- and so if we thought that there was something great about that, we would try to, to increase language diversity, promote the, 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 the divergence between all these beautiful English uh, dialects. So I don't think there is anything good in ling- language, di- linguistic diversity as, as such. But there is something very important about respecting people's dignity. And if people, if people identify very strongly with the language, they must be given the right to preserve it. And so I'm not in favor of euthanizing uh, 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 languages massively just in order to improve uh, mutual intelligibility. I'm in favor of the spreading of lingua francas. I'm in favor, that's the linguistic territoriality principle, of in- entitling linguistic communities to protect their languages. But nonetheless, there are about 6,000 Uh, languages that more or less that live or more or less live in the world today, many of them will die uh, but it's not something that should be counteracted for the sake of it, I can understand that linguists are very sad about it, but linguists try to convince other people that uh, there should, including the people who speak them, that there should at all price preserve linguistic diversity I don't think there is anything intrinsically good about linguistic diversity
0: well, I think we this call for unity. We just call for dignity. Maybe it's time to um, to wrap up. Um, so that leaves us to thank our speaker.
1: Thank you.